You're listening to Directions and Dialogue, a podcast where playwrights speak passionately about their craft. Today, I'm speaking with Deborah Zoe Lawfer. Some of Deb's plays include The Last Schwartz, End Days, Out of Sterno, Leveling Up, and The Three Sisters of Weehawken. Her works have been produced in regional theaters from the Hippodrome in Gainesville all the way to Chicago's Steppenwolf Theater. In this episode, we will be talking about Deb's journey from actress to playwright, her time studying writing at Juilliard and the BMI Lehman Engel Musical Theater Workshop, and her prior experience with companies such as Florida Stage and Florida Atlantic University Theater Lab. So let's take our seats before the curtain rises. Today, I am here with Deborah Zoe Lawfer, who is an internationally renowned playwright known for plays such as End Days, The Three Sisters of Weehawken, Out of Sterno, and Leveling Up. Her plays have been performed in off-Broadway theaters such as the Ensemble Studio Theater and regional theaters ranging from the Actors Theater of Louisville to the Hippodrome. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. We're going to start relatively easy. Who are you? Where were you born? And what got you into theater in the first place? Well, I'm from upstate New York in the Catskills, and I was always interested in being an actress. Like a lot of little girls, I was dancing, but mostly I, I wanted to act. And um, there was nobody interested in acting in my high school. Well, in my grade school either. My mother directed <laughs> directed shows so that I could do them with the neighborhood kids. <clears throat> and by neighborhood, I mean, you could barely walk to anybody's house. I was in a really remote little area. And then when I was in high school, I did the Bell of Amherst for two years because nobody really wanted to do a play with me. So I did a one-woman show for both uh, junior and senior years, and I would do anywhere that people let me. I did it in people's living rooms. I did it at the local college in our high school and at the Elks Club. (laughs) You were involved with Stage Door Manor, is that correct? Stage Door Manor actually moved to my town or a town away when I was 14, which was unbelievable luck. So so I went there for two years. Who were in your class, by the way? Who were you attending camp with? Jennifer Jason Lee was there when I was there. I think John Cryer was after. You really? know, they weren't, they weren't famous when I was there. They right. Were, and then I went to SUNY Purchase for acting. Was it the BFA program? It was. And I went to the city and acted for a long time and had just written one play, one full-length play. A friend had moved out to Missoula, Montana, and said, send your play. There's a playwriting conference. And I did, and I got in. I had no idea what it was. We had just moved out to LA so I could act, and and I went to this playwriting conference, and Marcia Norman was in charge of it. And it was remarkable. It just was thrilling. And she was the first person to tell me I was actually a playwright, which I did not know and would probably not have known if she didn't tell me. And a few days in, she invited me to Juilliard, which I would never have gotten in any other way. It was sort of just the luckiest turn of events of my life. Did you also study under Christopher Durang at Juilliard as well? Yeah, they were they were the co-teachers at, at Juilliard for many, many years. They've just handed it over to David Lindsay Bear and Tanya Barfield. So it's still in very good hands. But it was really a thrill to work with Marcia and Chris. 
if there were any words of advice from Marsha or Chris that you still apply to your creative process, what do you think those words are? What advice do you still take with you? The best thing Marsha ever told me about playwriting, and every every one of her students tells this in a different way or teaches it in a different way because most of her students that I know teach, she had said, when you start a play within the first five pages, you have to take a grappling hook and throw it up at the ceiling. And for the rest of the play, you're climbing toward that hook because an audience, even if they're excited to see a play, they're all wondering when they get to go home. <laughs> they're wondering, <laughs> when will this ever end? Even if they're enjoying it, you need to know where you're going and that eventually you're going to get there or not, but, but that that's where the journey is going. And that was really wonderful advice. And it also is, it's great for clarifying what your main character wants to do for yourself as a, as a writer. I love that. I always teach that advice. So you've ultimately spent a lot of time working in regional theaters throughout the country. When was the first time your plays were produced at the regional level? Yeah, it was Florida Stage, Lou Terrell and, and, and Nan Barnett. I'd had a reading there. Lou did one. He had play reading series. The Florida Stage was just one of the most extraordinary places in the country because they did exclusively new plays when that really wasn't done very much. So I did the reading series and, and Lou sat me down afterwards and said, you know what, I think we'd like to produce this. And it was the thrill of my life. It was my first professional, professional production. And that was the it last? It was the last short. Yeah, which I'd written my first year at Juilliard. I remember coming into the theater after, you know, we'd been in the rehearsal hall and the set was being built and there were 20 people on stage all working really hard. And Lou said to me, every one of these people are in this room because you sat down and wrote this play. I'm always affected by that. But whenever I go into a theater that it takes so much to put a play on. It takes so many people, such hard work. And the idea that I thought of a story that I wanted to tell, and then there's so many people who are helping me tell it. I'm still moved by it every time. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful insight about the entire playwriting process and going from page to stage. Uh, obviously, your relationship with Lou is a long-standing relationship because you continue to work with him on plays such as End Days, and you've even gone further with Lou after he left Florida Stage after the company shut down, and you continue to work with him through FAU Theater Lab to this day. So how do you think the experience was working at Florida Stage versus Theater Lab since the dynamic of working with college and grad students can be extreme from working mainly in an equity theater. It comes from the top down, how everybody feels. So even though Florida Stage was a really well-established, large regional theater with 250 seats and a large staff, and Theater Lab is much smaller, and The Three Sisters of Weehawken was the first production that they did, so it was a little hard scrabble. They were building the space while they were building the set. There's still a very similar feeling because... Lou always led with a lot of respect and love and making everybody feel valued. He brought that to Theater Lab, and now Matt Stabile is in charge there. Lou handed the reins over to him, and it's the same feeling. I feel very nurtured and nourished when I work there. I feel like I'm in good hands and that people will take maybe crazy ideas I have seriously. They're both really wonderful places to start new plays. I'm really lucky. I'm just so lucky that that happened. To have a career, it just takes a few extraordinary moments of luck where you run into the right people who see the value in what you're doing. 
I always say what you long for as a playwright is a place that values you as a playwright and your voice rather than just the play of the moment. The Hippodrome, as you said, so they did three of my plays. There, there are a number of theaters around the country that have done three to five of my plays or more, actually. And that's that kind of relationship is what makes a career possible as a playwright, because you're really not going to make much money and you never know if the play you're writing is ever going to see the stage. So having that kind of relationship is everything. Absolutely. As your plays continue to be produced beyond Florida Stage, beyond Theater Lab, beyond these other companies where you do workshops and premieres, at what point do you feel like you are having to let your baby go out into the world? Were there moments where you felt like, okay, now that this play has been rewritten, now that it's been finalized, now that it's been workshopped and produced, at what point do you say, let's let this baby bird fly? It's usually three productions. Sometimes it's been two because I just can't get to the <laughs> productions after that. And with Three Sisters of Weehawken, it's really only had three productions. And so I was involved with the first one and I directed it. And after that, I just had to let it go. But it's really good to be involved in the first three productions before I have something published because you really don't even know what your play is until you've seen three different groups of people interact with it and you find out so much. It really is a collaborative sport and you find out so much from what other people bring to your play. When Sirens was at the Humana Festival, they have an anthology, and so I had to have it published after that first production. And so now I go chasing after people who are doing it, saying, if you want to add this line or change this, now that I know the play better. So I still never let it go. What do you think the transition was like going from a company like Theater Lab or Florida Stage to the Humana Festival or Seppenwolf? Other than the way the rest of the world sees those places, it's always pretty much the same. I mean, Steppenwolf was a dream my whole life. Since I was a kid, I knew about Steppenwolf. I would have very happily scrubbed their floors to be part of it. So getting a production there was probably one of the thrills of my life. I just remember crying in the airport on the way home and calling my parents and going, thank you. I've had a really good life. And, and they did an extraordinary job. But really, every theater, it's all the people. Theaters are just a group of people who work there. I work a good deal at Cincinnati Playhouse in the park. And, you know, these are all very, like Florida and Cincinnati are very, very different parts of, of the country. I've, I've had productions, a couple productions in Germany, and I just had a production in Budapest in Hungary a year ago, unbelievably. Which play but was it? It was the last Schwartz, actually, and it was in Hungarian. And even though I don't speak the language, it was an extraordinary production, really a thrill. So, yeah, it's different because the people are different and different audiences laugh at different things or take away different things. There is a different culture depending on where you are. But making a play is always scary. It's always thrilling. And you always learn from the people who are part of it. Since you did say that you directed several of your works as a playwright, what do you think were the challenges that you face directing, for example, Three Sisters of Weehawken, which I was very fortunate enough to see at Theater Lab? Well, the challenge of that was it was its first production. It was a new theater that hadn't actually been built before, and it was my first time directing. So I, I was unsure of really anything. There was a point where 
I had just thought there was going to be a wall, a wall to the theater, and I was trying to stage it. We were, we were close to tech, and I finally said, when are you going to put up that wall? And they were like, we weren't planning on putting up a wall. I was like, oh no, all my exits and entrances <laughs> take place on that side of the stage. And they're like, all right, we'll put up a wall. So I had a huge learning curve. The fact that Lou believed in me enough to let me do that with their first production was an act of great love and insanity. <laughs> so that was unbelievably challenging. It's also kind of a challenging show because there's weird stuff that happens in that play. The whole set has to break open so that you can see the New York skyline. And the set has to keep getting smaller and smaller. And yeah, weird. It's weird shifts in time. I had a lot to learn, but it was also the thrill of my life. And it's especially impressive that you chose those bold stage directions of having Chinese food containers all (laughs) over the room and the walls continuing to close. And that's like a far cry from the original Chekhov source material. So well, David, I wrote those I wrote those bold stage directions when I didn't know I would be directing it. (laughs) I thought it would be someone else's problem. So serves me right. Speaking of Chekhov, since you did in fact work with Christopher Durang, who wrote Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike, which is also inspired by Anton Chekhov, to what degree did you gain inspiration from Chris when creating this work? I mean, of course, Chris has influenced my work since I was a really young actor. I did a production of Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All, um, and I played Sister Mary. I was in my late 20s, and Chris actually came and saw it just by luck. He It was on Theater Row, and he was going past and thought, oh, I'll come see this. So he was so much a part of my DNA. And I think all the people I really loved and admired as playwrights when I was an actor are so much a part of who I am as a playwright. So his sense of humor, his, his bold strokes, and his sensibility were just part of who I am as a theater person. I wrote Out of Sterno while I was at Juilliard and Chris was there. And really I wrote Out of Sterno to make him laugh. And I would sit at home and that was a big incentive. And I would say it's my funniest play. It was a play I wrote in three weeks and did some rewrites after that because I just wanted to please him, make him chuckle. Since you did write that play in three weeks and you frequently draw inspiration from a lot of different sources, How do you obtain an idea for a play such as the events following 9-11 in End Days? How much of it comes from personal experience? How much of it comes from following a particular exercise or idea? And how much of it is just spaghetti on the wall? Yeah, it's hard to believe, but when I set out to write End Days, it wasn't about 9-11. I had listened to a thing on NPR, and it said that 40% of the country was evangelical. And I had to look up what evangelical was back then. I mean, it was... (laughs) I wrote this a long, long time ago, and I didn't even know. And then the fact that 40% of the country believed in the rapture, I thought, I should know a little bit more about this. I started reading about it, and, and I was writing the play, and all the things about being raptured and fire and people disappearing and smoke in the sky and all... All the things that I was researching about seemed so much like 9-11 and the terror. And and so I decided that they were a family who was trying to recover from 9-11. The father had been in the building and it was, was the only one who escaped. And a lot of it is very, very personal. My son used to dress as Elvis when he was little. <laughs> so Nelson dressed as Elvis. And so I think there's a lot of personal stuff in all my plays. It's really hard to separate what's personal and what's not. 
Since you mentioned that statistic about 40% of Americans being evangelical when you first wrote End Days, and since we've experienced so much fear and so much conspiracy, as a matter of fact, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, do you feel like End Days would withstand some of the issues that we face today? Because I personally feel like it's a play that's so universal when dealing with ideas such as fear, faith, family, not knowing what's going to happen next, because I feel like some of the ideas of the rapture, I feel like can be just as applicable to, for example, QAnon conspiracies. Yeah, I know. It's a strange time. But Andy's been a play that's had four productions a year since I wrote it, or 10. So in the 20 years almost, it's always been until this year. Right. So I was just approached by someone to turn it into a musical, which I think mm. I won't be doing, but I think it's, there's something timeless about it because it's people seeking connection and people looking for salvation. And a lot of my plays are about people looking for salvation outside and discovering it's in their home or with the people they love. I think that's a recurring theme in my plays. But one thing I've realized, like the Three Sisters of Weehawk, and it's about people who don't leave the house ever. <laughs> and uh, and I, I was asked to pick a play to do a reading early on in the pandemic and something that would be a good fit for the times we were in. And I realized in most of my plays, there's a character who's afraid to leave the house. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> and a lot of isolation. So I guess we write the same plays over and over in different forms. So I could definitely see a Chekhov mentality there since there's always at least one isolated character in yeah. that situation to just look at the seagull. Actually, the last Schwartz is a Jewish family in the Catskills at the cherry orchard. <laughs> and it ends like the cherry orchard. And there is a character who really doesn't ever leave the house. So there you go. How do you think your writing process has changed since the COVID-19 pandemic? Do you feel like the extra time that you spend at home motivates you to write more or less? I actually discovered Pomodoro. Have you heard of it? It was a craze for a time where people were writing about it. The germ of it is that you can really focus on anything for 25 minutes. So you set a timer and in Italy, the they don't have an egg timer, they have a tomato timer. So that's the Pomodoro. And you set the timer for 25 minutes and then you just do that with great focus. You do that one thing and then you take a break and then you do it again. And I, I have a couple of writer friends in one of my writers groups and we've decided to meet every morning at 11 o'clock and we write for two hours. We used to do 25 minutes. Now we do 55 minutes, take a five minute break and talk about what we're up to or stretch and then another 55 minutes and then talk again and I have written more in this past year than I think I've ever written in my life I've written every day for the first time in my life I think I missed two days and it was for like doctor's appointments or something it's really changed my life I wrote a musical this year which I workshopped at FAU I'm writing a movie with a friend I've written a bunch of short plays. I adapted Leveling Up to work as a Zoom play. It's been really, really productive time because of that. I really, I recommend Pomodoro to anybody who's it's, who has trouble focusing like I do. That's funny that you mentioned that because one of my best friends is getting her master's in speech therapy and she's learning some really complicated material and she's using Pomodoro for studying. So this is like total deja vu at this point. Yeah, people use it for cleaning the house. You know, wow. it seems daunting but if you say 25 minutes anybody could do 25 minutes 
Going back to doing virtual work during the pandemic, do you think your experience working with actors or directors via Zoom has any kind of difference from working live? Because when you're workshopping that organic connection, do you feel something similar online? It's so hard. It's really hard. I'm dying to be back in a rehearsal room, especially as a writer. The stuff I learn about my work is not just what happens in the rehearsal time. It's, it's the little questions or comments that happen in between rehearsal. It, it's the little comments that people make in passing or the one-on-one -on -one or small group conversations that, that I learn what people are feeling or thinking or somebody will say something that will trigger a new idea. I just miss it so much. Everything is so public on Zoom. And some actors are very, they're very self-conscious to make a comment in front of the whole group. Well, if it were a very small rehearsal and you were just working on your scene and there weren't people watching, I think it would be less vulnerable. And people can't talk at the same time. It's awkward. I just miss being in a rehearsal room terribly. There's no making up for that. It, it's better than nothing, but right. it sure isn't as good. Are there any exercises that you use to develop, for example, your short plays? Is there anything that you have done within those 25 minutes in the Pomodoro? The way I start writing a play is with a big question. I found that focuses me the most. And then I, I research and then I find the people to populate my story. And then I have to fall in love with those people. And then I have to make sure that every scene in the play addresses one of the questions bothering me. So that's how I get into it. I don't know if that answers your question, really. I mean, there are wonderful books of writing prompts and exercises. God, what is the one I love? I love Jeff, Jeff Sweets. He's a friend of mine. I love his book. There's a really phenomenal one that I know. If you look up Liz Engelman, you'll find it. It's my favorite, actually. And I use some of Marsha's. So I do a lot of her exercises. And this year, I've spent largely doing lyrics for the first you know, well, no, I went to BMI, so I did study lyrics, <laughs> but finally finishing a musical. So that's a very different set of chops. How do you feel being a lyricist contrasts from being a playwright? Oh, it's so focused. It's like doing a puzzle. And I love doing puzzles, word puzzles and crosswords and stuff. You know what? It's most like I did stand up for a couple of years and I, I was never a very good stand up. I didn't work it long enough to get to a point where I could say what I wanted to say within the confines of setup and punch. And it's the same thing with lyric writing. You really have to work hard to not just say the clever thing or the thing that fits, but the thing that really means what you want to say and what that character needs. A theater song has to fill so many needs. It's got a lot of gods to answer to. Moving plot, moving character. It's much more focused. And like I could spend 20 hours on one song Really, I could spend 20 hours on one stanza. It really, I'm slow at it. And it takes that kind of focus to get something you really like. And on top of it, you also have to have possibly a rhyme scheme, depending on the piece. And last year, maybe Jason Robert Brown. No, I, I'm rhyming and I want the new fresh rhyme if I can find it and can't have the same rhyme twice in a show. And there's a lot of, right. there's a lot of rules. BMI had a lot of very strict rules, which it's good to bend every once in a while, but, but it's a good basis 
What do you think was your favorite challenge at BMI as a lyricist? Like, what was your favorite exercise that you did there? Oh, we did, uh, we had a lot of phenomenal exercises. The great thing about BMI is that people have been doing it for years and years and years. So you can look at somebody who did it like 40 years ago and they all did the Blanche Dubois exercise. Everybody's like, what did you do for your Blanche Dubois thing? And you write, like it's a specific place in the play and you write a song for Blanche. And it is so amazing to hear what different people come up with. It's very funny that you mentioned that because I was actually writing a lyric from another Tennessee Williams play, uh, Glass Menagerie. I actually based an entire song off of Laura Wingfield's I Was Going Out monologue. Oh, how great. And I was even imagining the melody. There was even a reference to Meet Me in St. Louis in the melody. And I'm thinking, (laughs) so how can you possibly take something as internalized and almost vulnerable and turn it into a lyric that is not only hummable, singable, but at the same time still conveys plot and character? That's the question. Uh, yeah, that was one that I actually liked. I had a, a wonderful composer I was working with, Benjamin Velez. I was lucky that he was my partner on that. His music is so gorgeous. It, it really was evocative for me. And I've been working with Dan Green for the last couple of years. We also wrote another show, and he's a phenomenal composer. The give and take, I, I, it always, there are so many rules to writing lyrics that I could be shut down pretty easily, but having a composer who makes me feel excited to go back in and find the next thing, or who will bend stuff a little bit to make what I'm doing fit, and the give and take is really exciting. I don't remember what you asked, I just went off on my own. During the pandemic, you've also spent a lot of time learning how to draw, and I actually have seen some of your self-portraits on Facebook. Uh, What inspired you to find this alternative creative outlet during these times? always drew it's funny when you go to school like especially if you go and study something like acting then you become very singularly focused and I put my drawing aside for a long time also just setting up paints and everything especially like if you're in a New York City apartment that's not going to happen and then my brother got an iPad and he's an amazing artist he's actually a radiologist during the day or during the night actually but he's one of my favorite artists I have his work all over my house and he'd stopped doing any artwork but it's so easy on the ipad and you can make mistakes which i make all the time you can cut and paste and move things around so i was watching all the work he was doing and loving it i got myself an eye pencil and it really it's just the most fun i've had in years (laughs) time goes by i can spend five hours and then look up and think it was half an hour and it's five it's just so engrossing I also love being an amateur, you know, writing, there's always the thought, I always hear a critic somewhere in my head, oh, if this ever makes it out into the world, what are people going to say about it? But with my artwork, it's just mine. I have no fantasy about being a professional. So it's just fun. It's just for joy. It's really great. I would love to find that kind of freedom in my writing again. Well, I greatly appreciate you speaking with me today. This has been a wonderful experience. If you read plays, I encourage you to read some of the works of Deborah Zoe Lawfer. Her works are published on Samuel French and Dramatist Play Service and are readily available online. Thank you, David. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much. Tune in next week as we sit down with Philip Middleton Williams. Be sure to like Directions and Dialogue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our episodes are available for your listening pleasure on SoundCloud, YouTube, and Spotify. 
Directions and Dialogue is produced and hosted by David McKibben. Music by Twin Musicom.